We're talking about true repentance this morning. And this is an important subject because so many of us in so many areas of life look for a shortcut. Are you one of those that are always looking for a shortcut? I know I've done that before. It's very common. Uh, I, for a little while, taught some adjunct classes at a community college where I assigned a three-page written assignment. You know, just three pages, not very long, not very difficult to do. You can do it in a short period of time, but man, those students were always looking for shortcuts. And I've seen it all, and those of you that have taught these kinds of classes in high school and in college, you've, you've seen it. You know all the tricks. I don't know why they think that they're going to do something that nobody has done before and get it past you, but I, you, you see them increase the font size, you know, to... 12.6 or something odd like that, or increase the margins to 1.3 inches, or worse, to plagiarize. Now look, I'm just going to tell you, if you're writing these papers and you're tempted to go Google some assignment and copy and paste it into your paper, your instructor is going to catch that. And they have all these tools where you can run the paper through some software that'll cross-check it with Google, but you don't need that because when you see those words, those $500 words, you know, that are four or five syllables, you know that the freshmen in college did not come up with that word. I'm sorry, no disrespect to our freshmen in college or high school students, but it takes you a few years to come up with those words. Very few of us ever speak with those words, and it just stands out. You just know it. So don't go there. Don't plagiarize. Don't take the shortcut. We take shortcuts all the time in all kinds of areas. Preachers take shortcuts. I heard about a guy one time who moved to a new area, and the work included a daily radio program, five days a week. And that was really overwhelming to him, on top of the lessons that he had to prepare for Sunday and Wednesday Every day he had to give a radio program. I think it was like 20 minutes, maybe a half hour. And so he decided that what he would do was get Hardeman's Tabernacle Sermons and read one of those for every daily radio broadcast. And he didn't say at the top of the program, I'm reading from Hardeman's Tabernacle Sermons. He just started reading them like it was his own material. And it was pretty popular for a while. This was many years ago. It was pretty popular for a while. And then he got through volume five, which is the last volume. And he had to start doing his own stuff. And there was a clear difference between Hardeman's Tabernacle Sermons and his own material. And people were not very happy about it. Usually, if you take a shortcut, people are going to notice and that, that happens in life. We do that, we make our mistakes, and the consequences can be painful sometimes, but we can usually overcome them. It's different spiritually. When we start taking shortcuts spiritually, well, then the consequences can be eternal. And that's never, ever good. The plan of salvation is to hear the Word of God, to believe that Word to repent of our sins, to confess Jesus as the Son of God, and to be baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins, after which time you lead a faithful life to God. 
not without mistakes, but always confessing your sins, knowing God is faithful and just to forgive them. That's God's plan of salvation in a nutshell. And you can't leave any of that out. But a lot of people want to get immediate relief and take a shortcut, spiritually speaking, and skip the repentance. And I've baptized far too many people who, as it turns out, were just trying to get immediate relief without the repentance. I remember a man one time, he was a truck driver from out of town. He had a near miss with a, what could have been potentially a fatal car accident. And he came by the building and wanted me to baptize him. And I sat down with him and I talked with him as much as I could. He said he was from another town. I tried to locate the church in that town. But after he was baptized, it became clear to me that he was just wanting a quick fix. And there have been other cases that I can think of where people didn't change. They just wanted a, a quick fix. And they thought of baptism as some kind of spiritual band-aid they could apply and then go on their merry way, living their lives no different than they were before. That's not God's plan of salvation. Jesus says in Luke chapter 13, verse 3, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Making repentance, true change, an absolute essential in matters of salvation. In Jeremiah's day, the people were doing the same thing. They were looking for a shortcut. They were changing in some ways, but they weren't changing the right thing. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11, Jeremiah says, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed the glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They were changing gods. They forsook the Lord and made cisterns that held no water. Those are the idols, metaphorically speaking. Wasn't the right change to be making. What change they needed was repentance. They fell into a common mistake, changing the externals, thinking that they could get by without doing the hard work of changing the internals. We do it today. We change the externals of the church, hoping to make the gospel more palatable to the world around us so we can fit in and still be religious. Folks, that's not going to do. We've got to change within. The heart has to change. True repentance must take place. God in his mercy offered them a way out. Numerous times he says, return. Jackson read Jeremiah 4, one and following for us this morning. That's one of many cases where God called on the people to return to him. What was he asking them for? True repentance. Real change from within. But they settled for cheap substitutes and false repentance, and in the end, they were destroyed. What I'd like to do this morning is look at their example. It's a cautionary tale in Jeremiah chapters 2 through 4, and note what they did versus what God asked them to do. 
God asked for true repentance and they gave him false repentance. And as we look at those two sides in contrast, hopefully we can avoid the ruin that they brought upon themselves. So let's start by looking at these chapters and examining their false repentance. And then in the second place, we'll look at what true repentance consists of. Jeremiah will give us a five-step strategy toward that. First of all, four examples of false repentance. Here's the first one. Red hands instead of red faces. Now, you've heard the phrase, he got caught red-handed. What does that mean? It comes from the idea of being caught with blood on your hands, caught in the act of murder itself. It comes, it evolved to mean caught in the act of doing something that you shouldn't be doing. And this was the case with the people of of Jeremiah's day. They were caught red-handed. They were embarrassed over getting caught in their sins. Look at uh, chapter 2 and uh, verses 26 through 27. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone you gave me birth, for they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they say, arise and save us. They were caught red-handed, worshiping idols. They were in the act of it. And so then they became embarrassed. But it wasn't the kind of shame that prophets they really didn't know how to exhibit that kind of shame, the kind that would save them from their downfall. Later on, Jeremiah would ask in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 15, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown. You see, if you ignore your conscience repeatedly, Over and over again, those guilty feelings will eventually disappear. We call it being desensitized. It's a very dangerous spiritual condition that can lead to spiritual ruin. Uh, Paul talked about those in 1 Timothy 4, verse 2, who had seared their consciences. And in Ephesians 4, 19, he talked about individuals who ignored their their shame so much to the point that they had become callous or past feeling. It's a problem, and it can lead to spiritual ruin. Red hands instead of red faces. They had lost all shame. Number two, second example. Innocence in their mouths instead of their hearts. They claim to be innocent with empty words. Now later on, Jeremiah would say in Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 2, you are near in their mouth... And far from their heart. The prophet Hosea said something very similar to that in Hosea chapter 7 verse 14. Listen to this. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail on their beds. They were saying a lot of words. They were outwardly mournful about their sins, but nothing was happening inside. Very similar to the Pharisees of Jesus' day. In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. You remember what he said? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart 
is far from me. Just because you are singing and praying and confessing, that does not mean that your heart is getting any closer to God. It could be a lie. And it was in Jeremiah's day. Look at Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 35. There he says this. You say, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. They were lying. Their denial was killing them. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. She was pretending to be holy. Denial doesn't alter reality. Just because you say, I don't have a problem, that doesn't mean you don't have a problem. Words do not alter what's happening on the inside of your soul. So be careful about the words of your mouth and make sure they match what your heart is truly saying. Number three, third example of false repentance, going back instead of going forward. Now, by going back, what we're talking about here is regret without repentance. Rehearsing the past over and over again, wishing it had been different, kicking yourself over and over again about mistakes, wanting to make it different, imagining a time machine that you could use to go back to some year, some incident, some path that you took that you shouldn't have taken, and, and thinking about how different it would be today if you hadn't had the past that you have. But you can't change the past. And that's when regret becomes very unproductive and unhelpful. Regret is an exercise in the past. And if we're not careful, it can become an unprofitable exercise, an obsession that turns like a wheel in your mind. Now, regret may be a good first step toward repentance, but it's not the same thing as repentance. Look at what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, and you'll see that there's a difference between the two. Paul makes a distinction there. He said, godly grief, that's regret, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. So godly grief, feeling bad about something you did in your past, is not the same thing as repentance. It can lead to repentance which leads to salvation, but it's not the same thing. And if you don't distinguish the two and let one lead to the other, you can wind up just obsessing over your past and never moving forward. And what God wants is for you to move forward. Regret can be very unproductive. And Jeremiah's people obviously belonged in the camp of those who regretted without repentance. Look at Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Have you not just now called me? And then he quotes, My father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? They were remembering the past and they were asking, you know, will God ever change? Will I ever be able to get off this wheel of regret? And God says, Behold, you have spoken 
but you have done all the evil that you could. You're talking about your past, but you're not moving forward in the present. You're still doing the same evil you did back then. And that's not repentance. That's not the kind of change that God is looking for. Last example, fire escape prayers instead of heaven, heaven approaching prayers. A fire escape prayer is a prayer that you utter only when you're in trouble and you're wanting to get out of trouble as fast as possible without having to pay the consequences of your actions. Look at Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 27. They were saying to a tree, an idol in other words, you are my father and to a stone you gave me birth. For they have turned their backs to me and not their face. In the time of their trouble, they say, arise and save us. Now, they didn't say that in times of prosperity. They didn't say that when things were going well. They didn't praise God for the blessings that he gave them. Only in times of trouble, they would call on God. They only wanted a relationship with him when he could do something for them and not the other way around. They, they weren't praising him, adoring him, worshiping. It wasn't a relationship. What about you? When do you pray to God? Do you pray to him only when things are bad? When you think there's a change that he needs to bring into your life? Or are you praying without ceasing in constant relationship with him? We really need to look at what we've been calling repentance and ask ourselves, is it real change? And one way to make that judgment is to look at some examples of false repentance. But an even better way is to look at Jeremiah's five-step strategy for true repentance. There's some very valuable information here in Jeremiah chapters 2 through 4. If we consider it and we open our hearts to it, we can see real change in our lives. And I'm not just talking to the folks that, you know, are, are lost. I'm not just talking to folks that feel they have done something bad that they haven't overcome or folks that don't feel that they're faithful. I'm speaking to those folks this morning, but I'm also speaking to those of you that have been Christians a long, long time that are the seasoned saints, you might say, to those who would be regarded as faithful. I'm talking to elders here. I'm talking to Bible class teachers. I'm talking to deacons. We all need to repent because none of us is perfect. How is that done? How can we grow even more? Jeremiah gives us some very practical information here in five steps. Here's the first one. Number one, we need authentic shame. We saw the red-handed shame in the example of false repentance where they get caught and then they are embarrassed. We need the kind of shame that is initiated with us within before we're caught in the act. We need to be ashamed before it's too late. Judah had forgotten how to blush. Jeremiah 6.15, we read that a moment ago. They did not even know how to be embarrassed when they did things that were wrong. Does that sound familiar? That sounds a little familiar to me. It sounds like our culture. When you turn on the TV and you see somebody dancing provocatively in next to nothing, showing off their bodies in lewd ways, I see a culture celebrating that 
without blushing. When you hear coarse and filthy and vulgar language used in everyday places, around children, without any shame whatsoever or thought about the innocence that they could be destroying with that language, I, I, see, a, I see a world with no shame. When I see justification of alternate lifestyles, when I see gay pride parades, when I see people telling us that everything we have believed and taught all our lives is wrong, and that religious, religious people are bigots and intolerant and hateful, what I see is a society that has forgotten how to blush. It doesn't know anything about embarrassment anymore. In fact, it's doing its best to eradicate it. We're told that we shouldn't be embarrassed. But listen to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 25. Let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Let us lie down in our shame. The world says, don't be ashamed. Be true to yourself. Don't listen to religious bigots. Don't listen to the Bible, that outdated book. Be up to date. Get with the present. The world has changed. You should change too. Feel good about all those uninhibited desires that you want to, that you want to fulfill. Shame is the first step towards true repentance. Mark Twain was right when he said human beings are the only animals that can blush or need to. God made us with the ability to have that shame, to be embarrassed, and that discomfort is a good first step toward healing. Number two, the second part of this strategy is an honest acknowledgement of iniquity. Jeremiah tells the people to confess their sins sincerely and fully. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice. Acknowledge your guilt. Confess that you've, wrong, that you've done wrong. That acknowledgement needs to take place in two ways. First of all, it needs to begin in your heart. You need to acknowledge the consequences of your actions. You need to admit that your sin is very harmful. A lot of people justify their sin saying, I'm not hurting anybody. Well, at the very least, you're hurting yourself. But you're hurting God as well. There are consequences to sin, otherwise God would not name it sin. And we need to understand that consequences will eventually come about. If we could see the consequences immediately, if we could recognize it and acknowledge it immediately, we would change. 
I mean, what if, what if that happened in everyday things? Like, what if you got fat immediately when you ate a bowl of ice cream? You'd probably stop eating ice cream if it, if it just happened like that, right? What if uh, you got lung cancer the moment you smoked your first cigarette? I think there would be a lot less smoking in the world today if that happened, right? What if uh, your dreams are shattered and, and you just felt horrible the minute you logged on to Facebook or whatever? And instead of feeling that way after three hours of scrolling aimlessly about, what if the moment you thought something bad about your spouse, your marriage ended right then? You'd be more careful about your thoughts. These were the kinds of arguments Jesus was making in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, when he talked about anger, he said, it's not just murder that's a sin, anger is a sin. Because anger plants the seeds that will eventually yield murder. Not in every case, of course, but the consequences of your anger could be very dire. He said, don't look at a woman with lustful intent because anyone who looks at a woman that way has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Literally, no. But that lustful intent is where adultery begins every time. If you trace adultery back, it starts with that lustful intent, that gaze that lingered a little bit too long. And so don't start it. If we looked at sin and we saw down the road the consequences immediately, then we wouldn't do it. We would change. And that's what acknowledging the iniquity is all about. It's saying, Lord, I know this is serious. Now that acknowledgement needs to be made first with the heart, but secondly, it needs to be made with the mouth. James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. James chapter 5, verse 16. And that's so that we can hold each other accountable and pray for one another and help each other through the temptations that are, that are very strong in the world today. So first, exhibit and welcome authentic shame. Secondly, acknowledge the iniquity. Be real about the consequences of sin. And how serious it is. Number three, third strategy, a change in desires. Jeremiah uses imagery to describe the dramatic change that has to occur before repentance takes place. This is in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, where he uses a couple of metaphors here. He says, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. He's not talking about farming. He's talking about the heart. The hard heart has to be plowed and broken before it can germinate the seed of God. The second metaphor, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. We need surgery on our hearts. We need to cut away that which defiles so that we can be made pure by God. Similar Wording is found in other places. For example, in, in Joel chapter 2, verse 13, I love what he says there when he says, rend your hearts and not your garments. The people were sinning and they made this big show of religion by tearing their garments, but their hearts stayed hard 
and geared towards sin. Joel's saying, God doesn't want to see you tearing your clothes as much as he wants to see your hearts torn open and bleeding for him, for his mercy. When David sinned with Bathsheba, he said this in Psalm 51, verse 17. He finally realized this. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's what God wants. He wants you to open up your bleeding heart to Him. He wants your desires to change. Most of us think the answer is willpower. You know, I'm just going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I'm, I'm going to quit. And so we, we try to force ourselves into a new way of doing things before the desire changes. And it doesn't work very long, does it? I know all of us have tried it, right? We've tried to correct our sin without doing the heart work. And in a few weeks, we're right back where we were. Because willpower is a limited resource. You strain it for very long, and it just can't last. It's got to go deeper than that. You can't... I mean, changing the actions, that's a good start. But you've got to work on the heart. The heart has to change. How do you do that? Go back to David's prayer in Psalm 51. What does he say in verse 4? Listen to his prayer. He's working on his heart. He says to God in verse 4, after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered, he said, against you, you only have I sinned. He's talking to God and he says, God, you are the only one I've offended. Now, was his actions not an affront to Bathsheba? Was it not an affront to Uriah, her husband, who was now dead? Of course it was. And David knew that. And he felt that. But in this prayer, he needed to go to the source. He needed to understand what he had done to God. And he reminded himself of what God had done for him and realized how much that he had been blessed and how much he had taken for granted and how selfish he had been and how much he was going to throw away and ruin. And that's when his heart broke. And he became capable of change. If we would only look back to the cross and see the innocent Lamb of God hanging there and ask ourselves, how could I do this when Jesus went all the way to the cross for me? How could I betray him when, when he died for me, how could I so shamelessly disappoint him and turn my back on him? If we start thinking in those ways, our hearts will break and we'll start changing our desires. The next strategy, an acceptance of God's grace. Jeremiah, in chapter 4, verse 14, commands the people to wash their hearts from evil. It's a command, right? You wash your hearts from evil. Now, doesn't the Bible tell us that we're saved by grace and not by works? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Doesn't the Bible say that we're so sinful we can't do anything to cleanse ourselves? Why is he saying to the people, wash your hearts? The Bible does say that. But in saying that, there is admission that we have a responsibility 
to accept that that kind of thing is possible. We know that the blood of Jesus is the only thing that can save us from sin. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Only Jesus' blood, only His death, His sacrifice can save us from sin. Sure. But have you been able to accept that and believe that? You have a responsibility to, to believe that. And when you really believe that, that's what that step of salvation is, belief. It's believing that it's possible that God would save a sinner like you. People say, all the time people say, you know, I've, I've done everything that God asked me to do, and I still just feel so bad about what I did. I just don't feel like I'm going to heaven. There are people that go to church every Sunday, that sing praises to God, that pray Every day of the week, they read their Bibles, they do good to others, and they think they are lost. Why? Because they never could bring themselves to obey the fundamental responsibility of belief. Do you believe that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son to die for you so that all those awful things that you did in the past will not be held against you? Now, if you believe that, then you're going to purify yourself. Because if you really take that to heart and you really believe that, there's nothing God will ask you to do that you won't do. If He wants you to worship Him on the first day of the week, you're going to do it. If He wants you to give of your means, you're going to do it. If He wants you to put away your immorality and your sinfulness, you're going to do it. If he wants you to share your faith with others, you're going to do it. If you really believe that you're going to heaven, then you're going to save yourself. You see? It's the fundamental responsibility. And so you see this language throughout the Bible. Acts 2.40, save yourselves. Philippians 2.12, uh, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Uh, 1 Peter 1.22, purify your souls. James 4.4, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. We have to accept God's grace. That's the fundamental responsibility. Here's the fifth strategy, number five. A return to righteous living. Return is a key term. It occurs nine times in chapters three and four. You see it in chapter 4, verse 1. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord to me, you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, return, return. Go back to the beginning. Most sin is habitual. Therefore, in order to change and begin to live a righteous life, we have to remember the life that God called us in the beginning and go back to it. Go back beyond the habits to what was in the beginning. Think of it as changing the default. You know, all of us live on defaults. We have habits built in. When we're, well, think of it this way. When you're at a traffic light, what do you do? Some of you twiddle your thumbs on the steering wheel. Some of you reach over, get your phone, and check things out. See what's been going on over the last five seconds that you may have missed. You know, we have default actions that we do. We don't even realize it. Uh, when Doug Rawls comes out of the church building, he hums. That's, what he, that's his default. I like it. It's a good thing. Some of us have bad defaults. Some of us have good defaults. 
If you're repenting and you need to return to righteous living, you may need to change the default. The first thing that you go to. I read about Rutgers University wasting too much paper and so they, they changed the default. They simply changed the, the default of their printers to double-sided printing. And all of a sudden they saved over 7 million sheets of paper a semester. That's like 620 trees a semester. And all they had to do was just change that first thing that happened. Are you someone who immediately gets angry? Are you someone who immediately looks the wrong way at another person? Are you someone who has trouble controlling your lusts? Whatever it is, replace that instant urge with something else. Prayer, Bible study, calling a friend. If you feel angry or you feel hateful towards somebody, turn that into a text of encouragement to somebody. You can do this. We have to return. We have to go back to the beginning where God started with us and do the right things. Righteous living. Authentic shame. An honest acknowledgement of iniquity. Change in desires. An acceptance of God's grace and a return to righteous living. This is true repentance according to Jeremiah. So what's robbing your peace? What's driving a wedge between you and your God? There may be many things, but if you're like most people, there's one problem that's bigger than the rest, so identify it and then change the default. Acknowledge that that sin has consequences See what it's done to God, change the desires, and start doing something different. Take one step per day. It can be overwhelming, but repent and start today with the first thing that needs to be done. And don't be afraid to ask for help. That's why we're here. That's why we're about to sing this song. So if there's anything that we can do for you, whether it's prayer or you're ready to obey the gospel, don't hesitate to ask for help. Come right now as we stand together and as we sing.